welcome to the Vocal Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Martin Thomas. Join me and my guest speakers as they discuss the journey they've had with their own voice, as well as light bulb moments, stories, and personal wisdoms. Vocal Freedom is a bi-weekly podcast raising awareness about vocal health and well-being from members of the voice community. My guest this week is Janet Schell, a mezzo-soprano, a prize-winning recital singer both here and in France, and was the first singer to sing live on Classic FM. She has sung with the Welsh National Opera, English National Opera and the Royal Opera House, but it is for her oratorio and recital singing that Janet is best known. Over the years, she's given many opera gala concerts for celebrated guests and royalty and had some unique experiences, including singing for the Spice Girls and David Walliams, giving singing lessons to the late Errol Brown of hot chocolate fame and singing for a royal wedding at Hampton Court Palace. With the COVID-19 outbreak, Janet currently teaches singing online at St Paul's Girls' School, Eton College and privately. She founded Talking Voice Limited, where she coaches classroom teachers on their voice use and vocal health and corporate clients on excelling in presentations. At the moment, that is all online. Janet is also the Communications Director of AOTOS, the Association of Teachers of Singing, and has a show on Brooklyn's radio. I would love to ask you the first question, which is... How would you describe your journey with your own voice? Hello, I'll say that first of yes. all. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Definitely a roller coaster, but a, a good roller coaster. And that's simply because as we go through, you'll hear that I've had some issues with my voice that I've had to overcome. And you know, the thing about voice is, of course, it's so much part of you. It's who you are, how you present yourself to the world. And when you've chosen to invest in that, um, you're going to have a much closer relationship with it than perhaps somebody who hasn't chosen to use it in a professional capacity. So, yes, I mean, there's been some vocal hurdles to overcome, but it's made me more aware and I think more pertinently, perhaps, about the way that I use my voice now. Mm. Okay, so um, I'm very excited to speak with you because... You're in the glamorous world of opera, which is not a, <laughs> not a, not a journey I've been on myself. And uh, I, I would just love to know what it was like to, become, you know, to be a little girl that became um, an opera singer. I mean, how fascinating for our listeners. Well, that's funny you should say that because I'm just preparing a talk at the minute, which I uh, have been asked to do about from the, the village that I used to live in was a place called Port Sunlight, which was um, from the soap magnate William Lever. And actually one of my friends, uh, I wrote a book about it, and uh, she said it's really like you've gone from soap to opera, which I thought was a brilliant ah, title for a chapter. Opera. Yes. That's which amazing. I use. And so you're right. I mean, my my background to from being a young child to where I ended up, I mean, is an incredible journey, simply because I wasn't in the kind of environment where classical music was played a lot, except that my mother loved it. Mm. 
The only other thing was, in my family, I had a cousin who was um, who's a little older than me and was becoming a professional singer, was at music college. And I loved her voice, and her husband was a singer too. So I just, I knew I could sing. I sang everywhere. And I wanted to be Julie Andrews at the time. Oh, wonderful. Um, but, you know, from those very humble, working-class root beginnings, and that's what I want to say, is that... There is this perception, I think, that if you go into opera, you've come from a certain background, you've had some advantages, maybe a more advantaged background. But I'd like to say, certainly in my day anyway, that I did it by sheer determination, by thinking that I wanted to do this more than anything else. I didn't go straight there. Um, you know, often you find that people have circuitous routes to get where they where they want to go, and mine was a bit more circuitous. But from a little girl, I just knew I wanted to sing, and I had it in my sights. And so I was very fortunate that I had one or two people who believed in me and helped me along the way, uh, one of whom actually, and I can now say this because he's died, was in fact the third... Lord Leverhulme, who was the grandson of the magnate from the village. And when I couldn't get any money to go to Guildhall, because I'd already had all my money for teacher training, because uh, I was a teacher first, um, and I was, you know, I had nobody to turn to. I didn't have family members that would stump up for me. Mm. And it looked like I wasn't going to be able to take up my place at Guildhall. And at the 11th hour, I wrote to Lord Leverhulme and said, look, I... I went to Port Sunlight. I grew up there. I remember you coming to the school when I was a little girl. I, in fact, read a poem out to the whole school when he was there. And um, my father said, oh, you'll never give me the money, Janet. What are you going on about? But he paid for my two years at Guildhall. And those philanthropists and those people who are, you know, like the Bill Gates of this world, who have the money and then know that part of that responsibility in a way, your civil duty, if you like, a moral duty maybe, is to be able to share some of that out and to help others who couldn't get there otherwise. So really from from that place, and yes, I'm quite emotional talking about it because I've just been I've just been writing about it. But without that help, I wouldn't be where I am today. And it's little moments in your life. Sometimes an opportunity presents itself where you have to create that opportunity, and that's the turning point for you. Mm, that's that's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, so humble beginnings bit like yes. me, actually, back in Wiltshire, grew up on a council estate. Well, I say that. I mean, in Wiltshire, it's not that bad, actually. You see, it's not exactly high rise. But uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had to um, get a grant from my local authority to go to drama school, for example. I just didn't I didn't come from a, a wealthy family. And um, I think it's a little bit better now for students who want to go into the arts. Most of the, the courses you can get funding for. I mean, then there's the whole student loan business, but at least it's a little bit easier to get your foot in the door um, if you don't have the money to pay for the tuition yourself. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds incredibly like you must have just been jumping around the room when you just got that, you know. It was a yes, it was a letter that I that we yeah. got. And it. I mean, I think my parents had to sit down. They couldn't believe it either. And one of my uncles was was thought it was impertinence for me to do that. Oh, really? <laughs> No, but it was also, no, it was entrepreneurial in a way, wasn't it? Because you were like, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make my future dreams come true. But that's so wonderful. 
So you went to Guildhall. Yeah. And how was your training there? How, how does it feel looking back? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was at Guildhall in the days when they just assumed that everybody was going, we were talking about this recently with some friends, that they made the assumption that everybody was going to be a singer, come what may, a performer, which in one sense is great because it funnels you and it channels you. And it means there was, I mean, the contact hours that we had, huge amounts. When I look at my daughter's university um, contact hours, you know, she had about three hours in her final year. It was ridiculous. Whereas it was so full on. We were, And because I hadn't done, I, I was put in at year three to do the last two years of an associate course. So I hadn't had all the language training either. So I had to go and do language classes to catch up. I mean, I was doing German classes with the first, years which included people like Bryn Terfel at the time. Wow wonderful <laughs> and you know that I was sort of in there trying to catch up on this German trying to translate songs I mean it was it was very full on but it was a marvellous environment and um, nowadays I think that, that the colleges and the conservatoires have a broader aspect they realise that not everybody's going to be I mean not everybody can be a world-class singer making their whole living from it. I'm afraid that's the yeah. situation. It's always been a slightly overproduced uh, profession anyway. But um, in those days, they didn't give you any other alternatives. They didn't give you anything about business. They didn't give you anything about how to... We well, had a little bit on how to teach. Mm. Actually, even that wasn't, um, you know, really taken that seriously, by certainly by the students. But what it did do was I had some of the best coaching and excellent singing lessons, you know, not excellent singing lessons, I mean, excellent tuition. Mm. I mean, I used to go come out of my lessons crying sometimes because I thought I was rubbish. And that's a diff. I don't teach that way myself. I never want anybody to feel that when they come out of the room from me. I want them to be empowered mm. and enriched and feel that they've got something that they can offer. So, you know, my journey as a teacher is very different to what I experienced, but that was kind of because of the times it was as well, I think, or well, I'd like to think. Yes, I'd like to think too. You, But you've come out of it unscathed. You went on to have a fantastic <laughs> career. And um, I'd love to hear about any of your highlights. I mean, some of the places you must have been touring and... Mm. Well, I was... Um... I, when I came out of Guildhall, I went straight into a company called Kent Opera, which existed at the time, which was great because it was like doing theatre rep. Mm. So you were there, you were in the chorus, but you all started, like Lineborn, really, start off in the chorus, but you get singled out. And I was always singled out, along with others, of course, to do understudy roles and to do concerts and to do everything. And then you toured around the southeast of England, we did, because obviously it's Kent Opera. So we went to all sorts of places and did amazing amazing concerts and and operatic performances and we were we were in canterbury in 1987 when the big storm came in um which michael fish the news you know the yes the i remember the cast said no it won't happen yeah. and then we were in the middle half the cast couldn't get down from london we had a performance that night all the understudies including me were going on that night and then eventually the cast did make it down oh. but it was that was quite a scary moment, but you have to be ready, you know, and the way my training had done that, it had helped me get there. I've done a lot of opera gala concerts as well as operas, and I've done those at a very high level to all sorts of celebrated 
people. And, and royalty. Uh, I've been very lucky, some royalty yes. and very famous people. And actually, in a way as well, what that does, you just go, they are people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're, they're not, you know, you've got something that they can't do that you can give and that you can share. And I think that's one of the ways to get over nerves and things, to think about what you want to share with somebody and just the music that you share, the joy of the music. And whether that's you being in an operatic performance or in an opera gala where you're having to switch between roles suddenly or doing, as I did, a lot of operas that were cut down into sort of 90 minutes or something. (laughs) So it gets quite an intense experience as well. Different costumes. I've had some horrendous wig moments, I have to say. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's fallen off on stage, I do hope almost i remember doing a performance of madam butterfly for a small company and i'd got the wig on and it had been dressed but during the show i was playing the part of suzuki which is the the maid and that's that's a killer of a role because you're on your knees for most of the time and you're cleaning up after everybody always you're you're taking tea trays here and there you have to do the japanese tea ceremonies and everything (laughs) but um i was sort of doing a lot of head nodding and heads down and head back up and i felt the top of my wig move and i thought oh my god (laughs) i just i then spent the rest of the show kind of with that slightly stiff neck yes and turn you know oh my goodness i as i i as we, at one point suzuki and has to go to sleep at night and they go to sleep just sort of like face down and sort of kneeling down and as i put my head down i actually just felt the front of my wig it just unfurled and so all this hair arrived in front of my face oh my god I was laughing, of course. I mean, I was laughing. And I just, God knows what the audience were thinking. And when I got up, I then had to take this swathe of hair and pull it back so that you could see my face. No, I mean, there's too many things that have gone wrong, I have to say. So. Oh, I love that story. I can't, I would just love to have been in the front row. <laughs> you would have, I would have laughed even louder if you'd have just laughed out loud, really, honestly. Oh, that's really, really wonderful. I love stories like that. And it's just, and they're just so fun to look back on, aren't they? Oh, yes. So I mean, afterwards, fun. after the event, you, yeah. you get through them. I think that's the thing. I think sometimes people get very worried about what if it goes wrong. You just, you have to plan for it potentially to go wrong. You know, you have to I think the thing about singing is and, and performing and being in those situations is that very quickly you learn to adapt extremely fast. Your reflexes kick in. And the worst thing, as everybody will recognise as a performer, is you do not want to be left looking like a lemon on stage or mm-hmm. with egg on your face or whatever. So you will do anything to preserve your you know, what you've got left. (laughs) Keep your dignity. Dignity (laughs) as well. So along the way, do you think there's anything that you that you know now that you wish you'd learned sooner? Actually, yes, I was thinking about this and um I think it's a very general thing actually and it can be applied across various different parts of your life, but it's to trust your intuition, funnily enough. You know, you have, as a performer, you develop a lot of, well, you've probably already got it, actually, a lot of intuition and feelings about things. And to know that somehow, if you've got the the goal in your sights, you will get some way towards it. So not to give up, not to be put off by 
lots of things that other people say and it's very easy to be influenced by others and there's a fine line between taking the wisdom of somebody else or being completely disempowered by mm. somebody else and I think what I've learned is to trust me and that you know my instincts were right so I think what happens is when you're younger you totally trust your instincts then you learn oh, don't know, no, that can't be right, let's think, you know, and you start to overthink it. And it's when you get back to kind of my stage in life, you go, do you know what? I would trust your instincts, they usually write. That little feeling you get inside yes. is usually correct. You've got to be true to yourself. I mean, I think that's the, the key thing is that you have to be true to yourself. And you will come across people whose map of the world and how they work it is very different to yours. And it's an opportunity for learning. I mean, always thinking about learning and growing and and having integrity about what you're doing. I think integrity is a key component. And if it's not meant to happen for you, I'm a great believer that you will be shown that somehow, you know, whereas if it is, you will get little ticks along the way. So, for example, for myself, very early on, I won a singing competition against all the odds. I'd never won a singing competition in my life. And this is a bit of a strange story, and but talks about a deeper knowledge, really, that one has. Um, when I was preparing the items for, for all the different rounds, potentially, of this competition, I was sitting in my, my bed, bed sit, <laughs> looking <laughs> at all my music, try, thinking, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something new and different because I love learning new music, diff different music. And uh, I actually chose to put a Kurt Weill song in, a French song of his called Je ne t'aime pas, which is a fantastic cabaret song of his, into this very serious singing competition, well, serious competition. And at the moment that I started putting that programme together, I suddenly had, and I can't, I don't know how to describe it, it was a complete understanding that I was going to win that competition. I knew I was going to win it. Now, I'd never won a competition in my life. I'd been in for a couple and not got anywhere, maybe got through to the second round or something. So this was like not coming from a past experience. But I knew, and then, of course, that was a moment where I then decided not to trust my intuition at all. Oh. But interestingly enough, after several rounds and over several weeks, um, I did win it. And it was just an amazing, and that was a sort of validation for me. So that was my moment of validation, if you like. That's that's wonderful. I think that, I, I mean, got to be honest, that's a little bit what I've been going through this year, almost feeling like... Um, my, well, I don't know. Would you describe when you were going through that thing of um, planning your route? And you, if you plan things with fine detail, you can just make them happen, can't you? But it's like the initial idea almost feels like it's being channeled from the universe or something. You know, that's that's kind yes. of. I feel very guided by the universe in in everything I'm doing at the moment, and I know that makes me sound a little bit kooky. But um, some of these that's things... all right. I'm in the cookie okay, okay. <laughs> um, camp, you know, as well. Maybe that's why I've been I've particularly drawn to you. But it, yeah, I do think that there's more to it. We there's definitely more to um, to the inspiration that we get and that feeling that we're charged with. Um, and also, you know, you were going back to childhood and things. But I was thinking, you know, from the right from my childhood, I just knew I wanted to do this. I only ever wanted to teach and to sing. 
And actually, I've done both of those things. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that once you know, I think it's awful if you haven't, if you don't know what you want to do. I think that must be, there's so much to choose from. Mm. Whereas I was quite narrow in my field. I didn't know that I was going to get there in either of those fields, it has to be said. But I think that by channeling and really focusing, you start to eschew all the other options along the way. So you're right, the more detail you put into something, the more likely you are to get there. There might still be something that takes it out and says, actually, this isn't for you. But the more likely you are to get there, simply because you you stop looking for other options. Yes. And you find, you, you notice the options that come to you that, that tie in with what you want to do. Yes, absolutely. Completely in agreement with you there. So you've, you've done your training at Guildhall. You've gone to Kent Opera. Um, how did your journey to the Royal Opera House happen? Um, well, it was all just building on on top of that. So, I mean, you just, I mean, I got an agent, uh, I got a couple of agents. And again, you know, you audition for people, you get heard about. When you win competitions, people start to notice you. Um, obviously, you're standing out slightly at that moment in time. And I went... I finished at Kent Opera and I, I was I was doing lots of concerts, to be honest. So I was doing more recitals, which is something I absolutely love. That's kind of my key thing. I did a lot of oratorio, but I was going for opera auditions. I did a thing called YCAT, which, oh gosh, it used to be called the Young Concert Artist Trust. It's called something else now. Um, and I was the first mezzo to be taken on by them. And... That sort of helped in the management process and in introducing you to different people. And it just over time, I came I came to do understudies and what we call covers, mm -hmm. different companies with English National Opera, with Welsh National Opera. And then and I sang a role for Welsh and then I got to the garden. And funnily enough, I mean, I was quite late to the party getting into Covent Garden. And when I got there, I opened the door and it was like all the people I'd known from the last 15 years, there they all were. It was like being, you know, oh, this is the party you all went to. Oh, wow. That's so, that must have just been the most amazing feeling, though, to for that as an accomplishment. If, yes. I mean, walking in the stage door at the Opera House is, a lo is lovely and they're all and everybody is just lovely in there. And just well I never take it for granted put it this way anything I do that has is part of the dream I never take that for granted and I always send up a quick wow thank you you know yeah. here I am and and so yes I mean I didn't work for very long at the opera house and I only ever did covers there but it was marvelous to be around that level of expertise my friends, mm. um, coaches, you know, I mean, you have to work, you know, you're not, you know, it's not a free ride. But it was, yes, it was a sort of pinnacle of me saying, do you know what, I can say one day that I did walk in that stage door for a reason. Absolutely. It's, it's an incredible story, um, especially when you consider your, you know, your beginnings, your dreams. Um, so yes. how that how that journey happened, it's it's really it's exciting to speak to somebody who's been on that stage you know I mean? oh yeah I, I mean standing that on that stage and yes. singing out it, it's it's very beautiful I mean um opera houses generally are you know are constructed for sound and so it helps the voice although 
I mean, to be honest, sometimes then you've got the orchestra pit and you've got to get over that. Um, but it's a privilege. You hear your voice in the, in that space and it's just, a, it is amazing. I mean, I've done auditions in all sorts of opera houses as well. And I did a big tour of South America with my husband and our pianist, John. And we did eight, uh, nine concerts in about three weeks, uh, all around Argentina and also been to Chile and also um, uh, Peru. And that was, again, astonishing. And coming back from that, Classic FM had just started up and they asked us to go on the programme. So I'm the first person, I'll, this will be something I'll take with me to my oh, grave. Oh, I love I this. was the first person ever to sing live on Classic FM. I sang the first note live oh, from anybody ever. That's a, that, And what a claim to fame that is. That's an amazing accomplishment. You know those moments when somebody yeah. says, tell me something that I don't know about you. I sometimes use, well, I can't use it now, but I sometimes <laughs> use that. No, it's a brilliant thing to have happened. And you can, no one could ever take that away. That's just, that's a brilliant, right. brilliant thing. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, Classic FM and I go back a long way. Um, I can't say that I was listening to that performance. I, I probably wasn't um, on that day, but um, I love classical music. And I, I did grow up listening to classical music. We had a really good um, head teacher in my junior school. And every assembly in the morning, he would play a different piece of classical music as we were coming into the hall and we would all sit down and then he would spend the first five minutes of assembly telling us about the composer and what the piece was. And um, it made us, it, actually, I find it very relaxing. It was like a lot of the music was just, you know, just lovely music. And opposed to all the other music I listened to, it didn't have any words in it. So we didn't get to listen to opera, but we were listening to classical music. And I love classic FM for that reason, because I have so many songs <laughs> in my head all of the time um, that my escape is classical because, but I'll go to it where it's instrumental classical, if you know what I mean. Well, you, funnily enough, that's exactly what I do. So I run a radio show on the internet now. And um, I thought that I would play, be playing, you know, sung music all the time. It's the la almost the last thing I play. I have to remember to put it in sometimes. <laughs> I just love instrumental and orchestral music. Me too. And I just play that endless I'm really so I was surprised myself by my choices yeah that's wonderful no I think it is when you're around voice all the time you almost need quiet time or just music without voice I think sometimes just to turn off <laughs> I, I would agree <laughs> so now you work with other people's voices or have done for, for many years mm. have you had any um sort of light bulb moments in, in either working with your own voice your development or with um other students that you'd like to share so um again interestingly i've been very interested in taking on lots of different ideas in teaching lots of different you know different methodologies have grown up over the years and i've been really fascinated to play with those but i'm going to put my cards on the table and say i basically teach the school of janet shell and and because of my teaching background i always work from the student, it's called, you know, student-centred learning, pupil-centred learning. And I always go from what's in front of me and then unpeel the layers. And, you know, often it's about if somebody comes to you, they've already got something going on for their voice or maybe something that they're not sure how to unravel. Or you just hear something that's 
stopping them, preventing them from making the best sound they could or whatever. So um, I think what's now at this end of my teaching life, I'm quite, again, going back to my instincts, which say, do you know what? I'm not, I wasn't wrong in the way I first started teaching, but I didn't, I, I felt that that was just based on me but I had actually had some very good instruction. And I liked, and whether I'm teaching music theatre or classical music, and there's big differences coming out between those now, but I think the voice works the way the voice works. The vocal cords come together, you've got a set, you've got the mechanics, you've got some space in, you know, you've got your mental approach to how you do it, you want the breathing, the posture, they don't alter for whatever you're singing. Mm. I think a light bulb moment for me was just realising that, that you can put many different layers on of how to sing and how to sing this particular bit, how to sing Wagner as opposed to singing Mozart, how to sing um, Rodgers and Hammerstein as opposed to singing Sondheim or something. Mm. Um, but actually, in the end, you can't sing any of that unless your chords, as everything is working, the mechanism is working at the basic level that's going to enhance you and be effective. Definitely, definitely agree. I mean, under, underlying whichever type of um, musical category or genre you're in, if you're, you know, your sort of basics aren't sound, it's yes. never going to work quite right, is it? You know, you really do need all those things in place. And it's, it's amazing for all of us, once we're performing and doing things, uh, there's this lovely phrase that you have to perform on forgotten techniques. So all that practice, all those, that 10,000 hours of practice or whatever, it actually helps you arrive at a place where you don't have to overthink everything and you can just to an extent once you've set everything in place set off and sing and you can be then doing more with the interpretation more with the actual performance more reacting to what's going on around you but i think that that takes quite a long time to get to and a sort of trust i was just going to say that place where for me when i talk about the podcast being called vocal freedom Vocal freedom to me is that place when when that all lines up and you can trust your voice and you're in the moment, you're present in the performance and the, yes. you're not thinking about technique because if you are, you're not in the moment, are you? You're thinking about the technique. So absolutely true. But, but, but the other the great thing about technique as well, though, is that if you know what your technique is, if you know what you do to make your voice work the best, if you're on a day when you're, you know, because it's very rarely all the ducks line up, let's be honest, yeah. you know. So there are, you know, there are often many performances where you might have a slight cold or you're just feeling a bit under the weather or emotionally you're not feeling great or something happens or the building's horrible or whatever. You just need to have something that you can rely on that will make the voice get through and work for you at that moment. Yes about knowing your voice at every stage you should know your voice wonderful advice and what does your voice mean to you well i mean like everybody who's invested in singing so actually putting your voice into an extraordinary place as well it's not just your speaking voice i suppose i, I suppose i'm going to say that old corny thing of it is me Mm. And I nearly had it taken away from me. And at that point, 
that was when I realised how much, well, everything I do is connected to voice. So whether it's my broadcasting, my teaching, my own singing, I work with teachers on their voice in the classroom as well. Um, everything I do is, is voice connected. And you see, I have um, a strap line for my company, which, which is to do with the training teachers and their, their speaking voice. And it's something like, um, once you find your true voice, nothing can hold you back. And you see, I think that's true for us in life. So your voice is so much more than an instrument. It's very much about who you are. And I think that what I notice that people who are disconnected from their voice are sort of disconnected from a part of themselves. So, I mean, that all sounds very grand and very um, spiritual and things, but I do think of it that way. It does mean everything to me. And I had um, a vocal hemorrhaging that went on, which is unusual. Only about 0.2 singers get that. And uh, thankfully, eventually it was sorted out through an operation. So, you know, at that point, when I was about to go under the knife, Ooh. the surgeon said, oh, could you just sign this piece of paper basically to say it's not our fault if it goes wrong? Oh. And, uh, you know, I sort of laughed. I said, oh, don't worry, you've just got my career in your hands. <gasps> but, but, of course, there is a point in any big thing that happens in your life, and, it, and often fate will come for the thing that means the most to you if you're not listening to yourself, if you're not listening for what's going on. So that moment you have to meet yourself and you have to say, what if I can't sing again? What if I cannot talk very well again? What if this does go wrong? You have to not avoid those questions. It, it serves you better if you deal with those and make peace with yourself so that you can be open to what happens. And if it's another journey, so be it. As it happened, the best singing I've done, even though I won all my competitions before that, the best singing I've done has been since I had that operation because it sorted out what was probably a congenital thing. Mm. My, my surgeon said, you've probably been hemorrhaging for about 20-odd years. but And therefore, the technique that I was taught by all my singing teachers has been so brilliant because brilliant... Okay, it helped mask the problem, but it did mean that I could get on and sing and make a reasonable noise despite that. Yes. That must have been such a relief, though, when you got through your recovery period and it was worth <laughs> The first time I sang, uh, the first time I sang afterwards, I went to my old singing teacher, Laura Sarty, and I sang for about, you know, they said, just do 10 minutes, do a bit of humming and things. And I sang flat. And I would never sing flat. And I was horrified. I was like, oh, my God, my voice, my voice. But and I was tired. It was vocally exhausting. But I didn't, again, I knew I'd been given a second chance. And therefore, I was going to honour that. And I just worked very gently and carefully. And only a few months later, I was doing um, a concert, a live concert. And I did a, a radio broadcast not long after that, a Friday night, music night or something. And... You know, that's a point where you think, well, if it's not going to not work, it's not going to work in front of several thousand people, hey-ho. But it's about it's about having the courage as well, the yes. courage of your convictions and the courage that faith 
that the universe will be with you, that if you're meant to do this, somehow you will find a way through it. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of the saying that life will take you where you're supposed to be. And uh, and I love the fact that, that there was a lot of open-mindedness in your journey there because you could have been in really panic mode, which might have hindered your recovery, mm. but being so open to the fact that, well, okay, if my voice is taken now, I'm going to find another path and I'll survive this. And of course, people, you know, humans are incredibly resilient. Mm. So uh, that resilience is wonderful to see and hear about and encourage our listeners to build on their resilience as well. Because some people really do fall at the first hurdle, don't they? I think that's like quite sad sometimes. Yes, no, I agree. I think that actually building your own resilience, and, and it is about that whole thing where you have to face yourself and you have to look at when things go wrong and say, okay, what am I going to do? What do I have to do here do I, in order for me to move forward from where I am at this moment in time? It's the most important thing that you learn. Now, I'm going to go back to voice care just for a moment. And I just, I mean, whether you've got a different view on this since having <coughs> surgery, I don't know. But what have you found most valuable in caring for your own voice? <laughs> well, I'm going to come back to something I said earlier, which is knowing it. Yeah. So over the years, I've got to know that... You know, everybody will say, oh, my voice feels X, Y, Z. And for some people, that's more serious than it is for others. So somebody will say, oh, my muscles are aching. You know, actually, generally, that's not a good sign. But let's be honest. But um, I've heard people that I've worked with really push their voices, you know, quite hard in rehearsals and then concerts and then be very husky. Mm. I think actually... The care of your voice needs to start through all that. So um, probably having the courage to not always sing out for every rehearsal, knowing when to give the conductor the moments that you know you've got to give them so that they know they've, they've employed the right person, and then, and then being able to pull back and do what's called marking, which is a great thing we do in classical music. So you sing, it's almost like you've gone into the next room, but mm. you're singing with the same level of emotion. <laughs> but, but it's uh, so all the technique is there, yes. but you're singing with much, much quieter volume. Um, and I think that knowing my own voice and knowing that, because after an operation, everything after that, you always worry that the same thing is going to happen. So even 15, 20 years on, you know, I still go, oh, my God, oh, gosh, it's happening again. Oh, <coughs> clear the voice and all this. But actually, I've learned that it isn't. Mm. And that it's my voice's reaction to what I'm doing. And to be able, I think the most important thing is, when it's not going well on any particular day, as long as it's not a concert day, walk away and do something completely different so you don't keep banging on the same thing and create a habit because voices are very habit forming. Yes, very good advice there. Thank you very much. So as a teacher and a broadcaster and a book writer and an opera singer and all these lovely things you do, what, what's now your favourite area of voice work? Well, I, I love teaching singing. I mean, I always love hearing different voices and, and I love that, that light bulb moment for other people when you can um, be along their journey with that. Something you might say suddenly unlocks something for somebody else. That's such a privilege, actually, let's face it. Um, but for me now, the where, where my focus is going is I'm very interested um, 
going back to teachers and how teach you know I know what it's like to be in the classroom I know what it's like to face the students who don't listen to you and when you have to raise your voice despite your best intentions but teachers are not given this level of voice training inevitably so there's a there's always voice dysfunction in 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 teachers classroom teachers of course now it's a really difficult time as well I'm looking to what happens when teachers are going full-time back into the classroom because they have not had the robustness given to the voice because they've not been in the situation so the voices have relaxed so they all probably think oh my voice is feeling great now yes because they've had a rest because they've had a rest <laughs> yes. but actually this is the key moment when they need to be putting in some kind of vocal technique for the spoken voice so I'm really keen to promote that much further I've been doing it for the last 13 years under my company Talking Voice and I go around and I work all around the country with different trainee teachers either in groups I mean I did my first online training session with some individuals just recently um, and that's again you have to adapt slightly to that also you know this whole thing about teaching on zoom or whatever you happen to be working with yeah. um makes you use your voice slightly different we end up sort of projecting to, i'm going to hear myself doing it now but you're in performing mode you know what i mean yes I do. so completely. i'm really very interested in that but i'm also interested you see alongside that i've taken two courses whilst i have been in lockdown uh, neither of which are to do with voice and yet ah. I think are inherently connected with voice. One is on emotional intelligence and the other is NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And I've be allegedly become a master practitioner at that. I mean, I haven't practiced much, but I am doing some practice with a, I'm sort of with people I trust. I'm sort of having a little play. But it's some those are things that I have been that have been part of my journey all the way along anyway, as the fullness of the person that I'm trying to be. So I just thought I'm now going to be a bit braver because it's very easy for people to say um, different things like we've just said about the spiritual stuff. And, you know, it's, a, it's regarded as a soft skill and what, how does that, yeah, it's really not, how does that work? But it absolutely, your emotional state and your voice are linked inextricably, hardwired together. And I think the more that people, particularly teachers, but singers too, learn this, then you can help yourself much more. And that's what I'm sort of going towards. So it's not therapy as such. It's actually a practical way of bringing that to your, your more conscious thinking. That sounds incredible. I mean, actually, I was speaking with um, uh, a speech and language pathologist from Ohio yesterday, the lovely oh. Kerry Obert, and it was interesting her, hearing her share that um, she she worked with Joe Estill back in the sort of she was nineteen when she stopped when she worked with her and then did a, wow. lot, of, a lot of her training as as her um, Joe's work developed over the many years. And uh, she was saying it's really interesting having spent so many years sort of really focusing here how her she's now gone back into sort of it's a whole body experience do you know what I yeah. mean it's it's much more of like being embodied with yourself yes. so that you can use your whole body to support not just support your voice but to support your intention and what it is you're trying to express 
And of course, that you just used a really fantastic word, which is embodied. And it is so, like I was saying to people who are disconnected from their voice, it's about learning to embody the sound that you make and then playing with that, of course. Um, Patsy Rodenberg has done a lot of work on, on this as well. And I totally concur with that. And I think that, that in all of these things, um, my focus is that it needs to help you take a step forward somehow. It can't just be something that sits, in your, sits around in your brain and it's a lovely thing to do and, oh, maybe one day, oh, yes, and perhaps that's doing that or maybe, you know. It actually, it needs to be guided so that you say, so the next, that's probably the NLP bit of it, the next step that you take, you know, how are you going to take what you've learnt here into a practical way of using your voice or moving forward in the next thing that you're doing. You must have heard some fun and worked with some phenomenal singers, especially when you were really um, in these wonderful opera houses. But I wondered what, what other voices inspire you and who you could never tire of listening to. So, um, you know, I'm a high mezzo and um, the Italians have a phrase for it. I think it's mezzo falcone, but nobody else seems to bother with that. But it really is a specific voice type. So it's a kind of... The door, in classical music, it's the Dora Bella in Cosi Fan Tutte. And, you know, for me, that role sits perfectly, or Rosina in Barbara Seville, both of which I've done. Carmen, interestingly, is a much harder role for me because I don't have the weight of voice to do that. So the first two acts are fine, and then it's like somebody else has walked in come act three when it gets darker, and it needs a more dramatic voice. Um, so the, the people I've enjoyed listening to are the people who, who have clear tone and and totally again embody their voices and it sounds easy so although I don't think she always does sound easy somebody that I was inspired by as I grew up was obviously was Janet Baker and I watched that wonderful Channel 4 documentary recently about her or BBC 4 sorry um, but somebody else for, for me was Frederica von Stader who was um, great uh, Falcone mezzo so you know that's that that in between mezzo and soprano almost where the height of the voice is something that you find terribly easy I tell you something I find very interesting when I say to my students I sometimes the first thing I do is I say sing me a note that feels really comfortable in your voice that you love singing and to me that gives an indication of where the voice is sitting yes that's a really cool thing I like and that yeah, if I do that for myself, it's always up round about D above, you know, way above um, middle C above the, yes. the, the D above that, um, which is actually really almost a soprano place. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. But I love, you know, I, and then think people like um, Barbara Streisand. What a phenomenal voice. And it's absolutely in. And I'm going to say something that a lot of singing teachers hate, d don't like this now, but I'm afraid I work with it. It's in the right place. Yeah. It's a place that is, that you can just, I can feel it. I can feel what she's doing when she sings. Yes, well, so I, I loved her voice. And Julie Andrews is the other one that, who's, you know, again, it was just a clear voice that you could tell what was, you could hear what was going on. And it was all seemingly under, well, it was under control for a, for a long time. I mean, ironically, she had, we had a pretty similar operation. Ah. Um, so I, that was kind of, it was after hers hadn't 
quite had the outcome that they wanted, yeah. that they were asking people to sign pieces of paper to say it wasn't their fault. But you talk about that. I actually have done occasionally just had um, moments. Er, do you know, I mean, he's he's dead now, unfortunately. Um, Errol Brown from a yes, Hot Chocolate. Yes, Hot Chocolate. Oh, my mother was a huge fan. Well, he lives not far from me. And one day I picked up the phone and this voice on the other side of the phone was going, hi, I hear you give um, voice coaching. I said, well, I'm a singing teacher. I mean, it was years ago, I'm a singing teacher. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. I said, how did you get my name? You know, I didn't know who it was. And he said, oh, I've got I'm a bit of a pop singer and I've got a tour coming up and I'm a bit... I'm a bit nervous about it. You know, I've lost a bit of confidence and I wondered if you, you know, I said, you've been recommended. I said, who recommended me? He said, oh, the music shop. So he'd gone really interestingly, like sing, classical singers would always check out with other people who was the person to go and see. He'd just rung up the local music shop. Thankfully, they knew me. And I ended up working with Errol Brown so that he could go on his what turned out to be his last tour. And he was a bit suspicious at first. And I went to his house to do the work. But actually, he again was a really nice person. And, you know, we sort of had a bit of a laugh along the way. And yeah. and he was a very high tenor, actually, he had amazing tenor sound. And he just loved the work that we did. And oh, that's wonderful. So, um, so it's the same sort of sort of thing that you get the privilege to work with some people that have already got the talent there. Mm. Yes ready to go but of course sometimes the mind gets in the way the thoughts get in the way the performance anxiety takes over and uh, all of those things are very interesting to me and how to help people overcome that I'm doing some more training at the moment for it so so we've got Barbara Streisand and um, Julie Andrews and some of your classical people you mentioned if you were to think of a performance um, that you think embodies vocal freedom can you think of anything that might that we could put, I could put a link in our show notes for our listeners to go check out this this voice on this song. Well, I know it's going to, it's not going to sound. Um, I, I don't know what you're going to think of this, but I'd say um, something like um, the person that springs to mind is Elton John or Freddie Mercury. Actually, really, those people, Freddie Mercury particularly. You know, he was just able. I mean, he did all sorts with his voice, but he had an incredible voice. And he just took the risk. It's about taking risks. Yeah. You know, vocal freedom is about risk-taking. So it's any it's a risky performer that isn't obviously screeching on their vocal cords. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, you could immediately think of examples when both Freddie Mercury and Elton John did that. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I would say that they inhabit the whole idea of taking things extending boundaries yes. and and taking a risk and that is in the end as a performer what you need to do it is for me no you know i've been to many beautiful performances of people who've been very contained and it hasn't moved me yeah yeah i can get that i know what you mean it's it's, it's those moments of of risk and I want, it's not exactly what I would call improvisation, but it's almost like being so free and trusting in the music and in your voice that you yes. may make slightly different choices. And I'd say both with Alton and, and Freddie, um, I've sometimes worked with singers that want to sing one of their songs and we've looked at some live performances rather than listen to the recordings just to see how they do it differently. And you could they pretty much do it differently every time, every time you look up that song. And that's that's another skill too, isn't it? Well, it, that, that's about being in the moment. Mm. That's about knowing your stuff, knowing what you're going to do, and then then 
going to the edge of the cliff and going, right, I'm going to jump. And because your audience makes you feel that way, or makes you feel, people can't make you feel things, but, you know, you are inspired by your audience or the situation or you're in the right zone and you just want to give. Of course, all performing is about giving. So it's about giving out to the absolute edge of where it's, you know, great performance is about being on the edge and not falling off it. I love that. Knowing where that edge is. But you've got to go beyond it first to know where your boundaries are. So what's coming up for Janet next? Yeah, so I have a have a website, which is janetshell.co.uk. And within that, you can see, you're right, I'm a bit of a, it's a, called a portfolio career, isn't it, really? You know, where I do lots of things, but they are all connected to voice. So, of course, what was coming up for me, I had several, because I still perform, I had several concerts, which have all gone. And also some of the teacher training that I was doing. So at the, that's why I have been looking at how I can provide, how I can use my skill base in this completely new setting and, you know, totally different environment in which we find ourselves at the minute. Now, assuming that we do get beyond that and that this isn't a forever, it won't be a forever thing, um, you know, it'll be all about working with the teacher trainers. Definitely I want to be doing work. That's something I can do, you see, for a long term. I will continue singing as long as I can because I was given another chance with this voice and I have to honour that. Yes. I will continue singing. And because, get me on stage with an audience and there is some symbiotic thing that happens that you can't put a price on, you can't you can't describe unless you've been there. And, and you never know in that audience who that matters for that day as well. I mean, that's something I've learned over the years as well. Um, but also I do want to move forward with thinking about emotional intelligence and how we reframe ourselves and how we think, how we can take some of the adverse things that happen to us and use them in a positive way or help ourselves live with those. Because sometimes somebody says, oh, you just have to get over that. But that's... That, that's not a very interesting piece of advice because, A, how do you do that? And it might be something, maybe we shouldn't be getting over things. Maybe we should be learning to live with them and put them in an appropriate space that means we can move forward and then they're not going to impinge on every day of our lives. So I'm interested in that for performers. I mean, I think I see myself, you know, if I had all the money in the world, I would buy a mansion <laughs> and I would... I would, you know, develop it, sort it out so that it was a holistic singing school. Oh, that's wonderful. That I'd love to do. Yeah. And I would invite in other people and I'd be talking about, you know, um, people who work with your body, people who work not just with voice, people who work with the looking after of you as a person, because all of that nothing's ever wasted you see as a singer nothing is ever wasted it goes into your performing so your worst moments in your life i think the message i'd like to say to people is that the worst things that happen in your life are probably there for a reason even though that's horrible and doesn't feel like it but it if you can find a way to work with that the performer you be will be outstanding make a difference for somebody else 
Absolutely. I love your answers today. Thank you so much. And what I will also say is that I think it was last weekend. um, I was coming to the end of a quite a stressy day because I'd had a lot of um, problems with Zoom (laughs) because Zoom didn't let us know it was doing an update. I had lots of meetings people couldn't get on and it was a bit stressy. And then I went onto my phone for a bit of relief and flicked through Facebook and I saw your your post with you singing smile to your little community. (laughs) <laughs> and it made me cry, but in such a good way. I, I, I was so grateful for hearing that in that moment because it did make me smile. It was singing the song Smile, the Charlie Chaplin song. That's right. And uh, and I didn't see that coming, actually. I was just smiling to myself thinking, aren't I lucky? I'm going to get to speak to Janet soon for my podcast. Isn't she wonderful? What a lovely thing you're doing in your community singing like that. And then just towards the end, the melancholy of the song just hit me like a brick. And your voice was so beautiful, it did bring me to tears. So thank you so much for that too. Yes, well, I don't know whether to say, say, oh, good, you're welcome. (laughs) No, it was, no, I'm welling up now. I'm so, I'm a a real emotional person. But no, I I do, um, I do, I do think voice sometimes the way that another, you can connect to another person through their voice and you can, uh, you can, you can express something, you can release something even through hearing someone else's voice sometimes. I think that's wonderful. And it's not always. You don't always... Know, and you don't know that as a performer. That's the other thing I want to say, is, you know, you can be standing there singing something, giving your all, and not feeling, because we all need to feel we get something back, not feeling you're getting anything back. And then at the very end of the performance, somebody comes up and says something to you that is just... It's overwhelming. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Janet. I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners before we go? No, I think I've probably said quite enough, <laughs> but I want to thank you for the opportunity. What's lovely about what you're doing is you're allowing, you're giving somebody a synthesis, a way of just bringing together all their thoughts that can be quite random. We all have really random thoughts at times, and it's lovely every so often, and I like to do this as well, is to just sit down and just be quiet and focus on with through your questions, which are great, by the way, which just allow you to to decide what you want to say about something. And um, it's been it's been lovely because I'm a real rabbit. I'll rabbit on for hours. So don't let me carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely to hear about your career and your journey. And I thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on the Vocal Freedom Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and we'll move into your day with a bit more vocal freedom, feeling that you can express using your voice and let the world hear what you have to say. Visit colchestervoiceacademy.com forward slash podcast. Sign up to be kept informed as new episodes are published and consider joining our online community. Membership to this will allow you to post questions to our guests link you to show notes, social media links, and entitle you to exclusive offers from our guests. See you next time.